I'm Ian Dalimore, and this is Digital and Dirt. You guys put a billboard on Mars. You want us to start from the very beginning? Uh, we had four hours. <laughs> All right, guys, my next guest. I'm, I'm super excited to interview this gentleman and just have a conversation with him. He's one of those people that you just want to be around. He's one of those guys that just rolls up his sleeves. He gets a group of people and he gets excited about literally anything. And I've, I've been blessed to be a part of a lot of those anything projects, but um, I'm excited to have a conversation today with uh, Ross Riley. Ian, hey, how are you? Good, good. Glad Thanks to, for having me. Yeah, glad to have you here. Hopefully I didn't build you up too much on that. But Ross, why don't you tell our guests a little bit more about yourself before your professional career and kind of your, your intro into the workforce? Yeah, sure. So, you know, before I got into the billboard business, um, I was in the solar business and that was sort of uh, just a happenstance coincidence. I stumbled into it uh, without any formal training, just a real desire to get into green energy and business with a purpose. And so after I graduated from school with a history degree in 2008, 2009, with uh, very little sort of job prospects on the future or on the horizon, I moved to New Orleans, got my credentials for to be an electrical contractor and started a solar business out of the back of my truck. And it was the best possible example I could have, especially as it relates to what I do now uh, in the billboard business is because mm-hmm. You've got to deal with local municipalities on getting permittings for things. You're kind of dealing with um, people. People. <laughs> you're dealing. You know. You're 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 always selling. And so when I think about it, it was kind of good training for the billboard business. Yeah, for sure. So you you physically were on the roof installing solar as well. Like you weren't just one of these like owners of and the company is called Jolie. Well, see, I don't mean to blow up your spot. Jewel. Jewel. Oh. Jewel, a unit of energy. Wait, did, wait yeah. did you, oh, Jesus, that's like the obvious. <laughs> but it does look, but, it, but no, it, and, and also I was trying to church for it French, it, it could be, yeah, yeah, you were, yeah, you were that putting New Orleans juice on, on it. <laughs> yeah, like, like all good things, it sort of, you know, started by um, doing it yourself, so you really yeah. understand it down to the uh, base level components. And so, you know, but at the same time, I was, uh, I wanted to understand everything. So I installed, you know, it was sold and installed like the first 10 or 20, had some great partners with me in the business, but pretty quickly, um, you tried to get people that are better than you at that sort yep. of doing those things so that you can grow the business in other places. Yeah. And for our listeners who aren't in South Louisiana in July, August, like literally we're talking about surface of the sun type stuff here, like on top of the roof, installing solar in the most maximized position and you're up there just physically dead. Like yeah. I, I would envision you had lost like 20 pounds that summer. Yeah. It can get hot. You know, you gotta, yeah. you gotta have a lot of tips and tricks to, to stay cool, to stay hydrated yeah. and, and, and to prevent, you know, dehydration or exhaustion from being up there. But, uh, but it's doable and it's rewarding and the company is still kicking strong and That's it's great. still sole. uh, you know, the, the, I guess the strongest, uh, solar installer in the Gulf South and and still putting up clean solar energy every day. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the things, as I had said in the intro, that inspires me about Ross is you put a project in front of him. Not only is he going to get, get a group of people just ready to run through a wall for him, but it's interesting how that first steps as a career led you to where you are at Lamar. 
So your journey, it's it's fascinating, right? And and for our listeners who don't know, Ross Riley is a part of the Lamar Riley Switzer family. And I hope you're okay with me saying this, yeah, but one of the one of the things that's always inspired me is the fact that you didn't just show up day one. You know, your journey was always roll up your sleeves, let me learn the facet of business that I'm in front of. And that first role with Lamar was a real estate manager at a local New Orleans market, so a local plant. So let's let's kind of talk about that with the viewers. Yeah, so I grew up in the, in the business. You know, most of the icons in, in, in the Baton Rouge yeah. office. You know, being guests at my house and, and and just good friends of through my through my dad. And you know, my mom is also just a student of the business on the visual side. She just loves yeah. the, the the creative history of, of of the billboard industry. And so you're just surrounded by by the company and the industry. And so I, I sort of knew. I resisted getting into it, even though I had a desire to be a part of it because I just always thought it was cool. But I knew that sort of once I put a toe in, it would sort of suck me in fully and completely and that there was sort of no turning back. You know, there was no way to just sort of dabble in the business and then leave to go, you know, pursue something else. And so, you know, I had to make sure that, that I proved to myself that I could, you know, be capable in, in, in other industries and in other areas that were sort of separate and apart from this business that I had, you know, been intertwined with for so long. So after being the, the founder and chief operating officer of, of a solar company, having 75 employees and doing work all over the U.S., I went back to being a junior real estate manager for Jeff Burton, who's now the GM in Chicago, for the New Orleans plant. And so we had just acquired a company called Marco. We were pretty subscale at that time in, in that particular market. And despite being a, a Louisiana company, a Baton Rouge founded company, Lamar never really had a footprint in New Orleans, which yeah. would be sort of the biggest metropolitan area of, uh, of Louisiana. So it was kind of a, a point of pride to finally have a dot on the map, so to speak, or a plant yeah. in, in, in New Orleans. And we got to work building out, starting from a platform of an acquisition and building out new locations and learning all these landowners that we had just um, taken over and adopted from Marco and and sort of establishing uh, the Lamar culture for the New Orleans plant. Yeah. It was extremely, extremely rewarding, that group of people and sort of that entry in, into the business. But it was definitely going from uh, – being a boss, being an entrepreneur who didn't have to really listen to anybody other than my customers sure. to being to being an employee that knew nothing about this particular nuanced, you know, side of the business, which was the real estate leasing side of things. Yeah. And this and, and look, it, it doesn't matter how long your your family's been in this space. This this business will eat you up and spit you out pretty quick if you're a fraud or, or you just come in and pretend and the real estate side of the business yeah, Such there's a, nowhere to hide. Yeah, you have there's nowhere, nowhere to, hide. to hide. Whether it's sales or real estate, either side of the local side, there's yeah. nowhere to hide because the results are easy. Are you bringing in the leases yep. with the term at a low price? Are you bringing in the contracts? Right. Yeah. Let a term in the high price. Right. So let, let another logo pop up in your in your market in your job title as a real estate manager. That's a not a it's not a good day. I would yeah. imagine. So you grow up like you talked about with with the legacies of of people. Um, and, and look, Lamar's been around for 120 years 
and we've we have some pretty major legends that are in the space. So for you, what what was that mindset like? Hey, I can't fail at this because I've I have heard you know your your dad was the the former CEO now the chairman of the board for Lamar Advertising and and I love your mom. I'm so glad that you mentioned your mom. Winifred is is one of the most fascinating creative people that I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. But you have the Ann Hamiltons who are the local AEs that are constantly, you know, you're hearing these people. I, I don't want to be so melodramatic about it, but like the ability to have all these people throughout your life, throughout your childhood. And now here you are taking a chance to just dive into this business. That's, that's brutal that we talked about. I, what does that, what does that feel like? Well, when I did dive into it, I felt like I was ready. You know, I think that I would have had a lot of, you know, sort of reservations and wouldn't have done so well had it been sort of the default thing to do when, when I had gotten out of college or or earlier on in my life. So I'm really glad that I tried something else because I I got to have um, some perspective when I, when I jumped into it, but yeah, it's been fantastic because like you said, there's these folks that have been around my life as a function of the business even though I wasn't in the business. And then when I met them outside of the personal side of things on the professional level, they gave me nothing but love and support, you know? And so it it made it a lot easier to, to learn and to grow. Yeah, for sure. So you go from real estate manager in new Orleans to becoming the GM of the Baton Rouge plant. Mm -hmm. That that's a big leap, but well positioned for it. And look, we, we fast forward, Ross has been with Lamar for over six years now. So well established within the company, being a GM, maybe touch on that briefly. Cause I think a lot of listeners, when, when, when they think of out of home companies, they just think of, okay, we have the corporate office, but Lamar is very siloed in the sense and the way that it's structured. So being the GM of a, of the Baton Rouge plant comes with a lot of employees, a lot of responsibilities. So maybe just briefly touch on like what your day-to-day responsibilities were as the GM and, and maybe one or two big findings or learnings that you had never thought of in the out-of-home space until you had physically had to sit in that chair. Yeah. So at Lamar specifically, I can't speak for other companies, but we want the GM to be the CEO, the, you know, the highest um, ranking executive for that local market. Mm -hmm. And we want them to be a complete business person and a complete human, you know, in terms of being able to manage their P&L and drive growth um, on the top line, drive growth on the cash flow side of things, but do it in a way that looks towards the long term Mm -hmm. so that you aren't jeopardizing relationships with the community. You aren't making, you know, short-term trade-offs for, you know, for, hitting this quarter's, this year's Mm -hmm. numbers, but so that the plant is set up on a foundation that allows it to succeed far into the future. So I think it's one of the more satisfying jobs that anybody can have, you know, in terms of uh, stakeholders, there's no, there's no boring day. There's no two days that look alike because think about the stakeholders in, in that job. You know, for a plant like Baton Rouge, you have a thousand different landowners Mm -hmm. that are your friends, hopefully. Sometimes, you know, there might be a little friction, a little disagreement about terms, about payments, and so that you're always working through that. 
you got a few thousand different customers that are all your friends and you're trying to better position their companies, their brands within that market yeah. to be successful. You've got these amazing employees. You've got the Department of Transportation. You've got local municipalities and council people and folks on. So the Rolodex you develop in that position is is pretty exciting, you know, yeah. especially in kind of, you know, are what we call Lamar land. And it even escalates all the way up to, you know, big markets like LA, Detroit, New York, where those general managers, they know, they know a lot of people and they know a lot of things about their market because they're privy to things that very few other people are. And when it comes to the intersection of advertising, real estate and, and sort of government relations. So it's, it's an exciting role to be in. I would suggest anybody in the business or outside of the business yeah. to kind of aspire to be there because I tell you what, it's, it's fun and rewarding. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think one of the success that Lamar sees is because of the way that, that the company structured in that way. So there's a Lamar Baton Rouge plant. There's a Lamar of New Orleans. There's a Lamar of Detroit, Chicago. And the difference in the out-of-home side of business is you could be a GM of a, a radio station or a GM of a TV station, and you may run an ad that's maybe a little controversial, yeah. and you can maybe get away with it. But as a GM, you're – and our good friend Rick Robinson always calls it the people space mm-hmm. – if you accept the wrong copy or put up some controversial creative, there's nowhere to hide. That's your responsibility as the GM because all of a sudden there's, you know, you know, mom's driving a church with the kids and they see this billboard and now this is all on you, GM yeah. of X plant. So it, it's square. bigger than it's, that. It's yeah. the people's space and, and, and there's a lot of responsibility that comes along with that via the broadcast yep. space, which it just feels like it's kind of coming down on high or maybe yep. not like, you know, you don't feel a personal connection to right. it. But when it's where you work, play, live, yeah. uh, you know, you, you've got a connection to it and you've got a point of view. And mm-hmm. so you're always balancing, you know, these competing points of view and trying not to ever sacrifice your own and, and the company's point of view in, in, in managing that. So it, yeah. it, there's, there's always a lot of give and take and, and there's always um, a ton of stakeholders involved. And I'm surprised more general managers in the outdoor space aren't ending up in politics because right. they certainly <laughs> have got to, you know, have got to, got to manage a lot of competing interests. Yeah, for sure. So you kind of touched on it, but the culture side of the business, you know, uh, for our listeners, uh, my background, been with Lamar for 16 years, but before that I worked in minor league baseball and and I'll never forget this. I know I've shared this story once or twice with you, Ross, but day one for me at at Lamar, I was like, all right, going to work for a big corporation, got to put the suit on, which nobody here wears suits. But I dressed the part, and the first individual that I actually had the pleasure of meeting um, was Kevin Riley Sr., who was one of the uh, former CEOs and, and really took this company to a different level. I'll never forget this. The first day I jump on the elevator, it's him and I, and we're riding up to the third floor in our old building. And he asked me a little bit about myself. We exchanged some kind of accolades about baseball. He was a phenomenal baseball pitcher, or at least that's what he told me. (laughs) Um, But the one thing that stuck with me wasn't the baseball conversations that we had over the months and over the years as I took that same elevator ride, but it was the golden rule. And, you know, at first you kind of take it as, oh, that's just the corporate mantra. But, 
you know, one of the things that I, I've really become passionate about was that, you know, we leave every community better than we found it. And that may sound hokey as a billboard company to say that, but there's so many different angles and so many different ways, as you've kind of described at the GM level, why that's important and the lives that you do touch, the impacts that we do have within a community. We may come in and put a billboard up and have to cut down a handful of trees, but we'll go plant some more trees over here. Or, you know, we roll out a new digital and we do something for the community within a couple of those slots. Touch on that. Like, what does that mean to you as an employee with this company, the golden rule and the importance of leaving the community better than you found it? Because it's not just this corporate slogan that we just happen to come up with. Yeah, exactly. You know, I didn't even recognize it as a as a corporate slogan, you know, I just heard it around my house so much, you know, right, yeah. leave well, it better than you found it and, well. and treat others as you want to be treated. And so I have tons of respect and, and, and appreciation for it more so now than, than before. And, and what amazes me about those sort of simple mantras now is that they always work. You, you'd be tough pressed to find a, a scenario where sort of, you know, treating somebody as you want to be treated doesn't, doesn't work out. Right. And even if you bring it to excess, you know, a lot of these sort of concepts when brought to excess sort of crumble and break down. Mm-hmm. There, there can't be, I guess, too much of a good thing when it comes to, you know, treating, treating folks right or, yeah. you know, leaving a place better than you found it. So it sort, of, it's, it sort of holds up in terms of the ability for it to be universally applied and applied with intent and vigor and, and, not, and, and not breaking down. But yeah. It's helped me most recently, you know, through the pandemic yeah, and through a lot of the, the social issues that were, that, that went on in, in 2020 and a lot of the so just conflicting information you would get sources online or sources on the news. And it's pretty easy just to sort of, you know, step back from all that stuff and just say, you know, delineate between uh, what's wrong or what's right when you, when you put it through the golden, golden rule prism. So yeah. it, it stood up in that moment pretty well, but yeah, we, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think we give it, give it lip service. I think that we, we really apply it. And, you know, I also think that as opposed to applying it when you join Lamar, I think that it's sort of the number one credential for hopefully getting hired on at Lamar, you know, just do you have high integrity? Are you a good person above and beyond sort of anything else as as being critical? So you're in your new role, the VP of Mm M&A. So talk to our listeners a little bit about what that means, uh, mergers and acquisitions for the M&A portion. The golden rule, when you come in and you find a company that we we're going to acquire. Right. So, yeah, you know, the, the biggest aspect to this is, is just allocating capital to the, to the right space. And, you know, sometimes it is acquisitions. Sometimes it's greenfield developments. Sometimes it's purchasing, you know, unbuilt uh, permits and, and uh, sites from, from independent entrepreneurs. But, you know, I think that, when it comes to that, it's certainty. You know, mm-hmm. I know that I've been on the other side of a lot of transactions when I'm I'm on the selling end of things, and, and and there's not as much, I guess, codified structure and formality to selling a business as there is, say, selling a car, or selling a house, or even selling commercial real estate. You know, 
you have to feel it out. And the approach that we take is that, and, and this is something that I've learned from, from Kevin and Sean, is that we're not trying to win a transaction, meaning get over on someone, you sure. know, like just like pay an obscenely low price and sort of get a quick win. Yeah, We just want to pay, pay what's fair. We want to pay the correct value. We want to value those assets independently. And we think we're in a good position to, to know how to value those assets because we get to look back at um, all the similar assets that we manage or all the historical acquisitions that have yeah. done that sort of rhyme with or kind of look like this one. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sometimes the seller might not like it. And they're and they're disappointed by maybe the number we offer, but we want them to know that we are making the best offer that we think yeah. that, um, makes sense for us and for them, uh, regardless of their circumstance. And then sometimes people are surprised to the upside, you know, because yeah. sometimes we do that exercise like, wow, you know, they valued it more than what I, what right. I um, expected it to be. Because mm-hmm. we just try to see what we can do with those assets and um, what we feel like should be paid for them. So, so yeah, it does, you know, that that's, I never thought about the golden rule applying to, uh, to, to my job on the, yeah. on the M&A and acquisition side, but you're right. It does. It, once yeah. again, it proves it doesn't matter what you're doing. You can, you know, you, you can find a solid application of it. Yeah. Without a doubt. Uh-huh. So you've, you've been around the industry long enough, as I'd mentioned, you know, I, I get a little bit puffier chest whenever people not necessarily talk bad about Lamar, but, oh, you guys are in the mid-sized markets. I, I remember early on in my career when when uh, my mentor, John Miller, and boss at the time would always say, like, oh, we're just, you know, the, the middle of the market. I, and it, I don't know why, but, it, Ross, it would just get me so heated. I'm like, hell no, we're in New York, we're in L.A., we're in Chicago. And even though we weren't the biggest players there, I think uh, oftentimes I had that mentality of, like, no, but we're bigger than that. And I, I've learned over my career that it's like, we're the biggest outdoor company globally from a revenue perspective and, and we don't have to tout it. And I think that that's one of the things that I've loved about the company is, you know, we're not throwing out press releases every day about every little acquisition that we make. But one of the statements that was recently made, and, and I did get puffy chest and I did get excited, like, see, I told you all, um, but someone had described Lamar as the Amazon of out of home. And, you know, it makes you feel good when you think about that. Like, oh, we're, we're in the same bucket as a tech company. Now, are we, are we Jeff Bezos rich? No, but from, from an evolution of a company and and hearing, hearing outsiders align Lamar as the Amazon of out of home. And, and maybe let me put some context for it. Yeah. I would love to know who said that. Yeah. I'll tell you the kind of context behind it is the recent uh, investment within Vistar media, Mm -hmm. the announcement of the SPAC for Lamar looking, Mm -hmm. and then probably a handful of, of acquisitions. You take a step back and no longer does it look just like a billboard company, right? So the question for you is, the evolution of the space, you know, not just the media types, because we do know that, you know, there's the screens on top of taxis, there's screens everywhere, there's play-based screens, there's roadside billboards, Times Square has evolved, Sunset Strip has evolved. But what is the evolution of out of home and being described as bigger than just a billboard company? What does that mean to you and, and your, your future mindset of the company? Yeah, so I think that 
maybe the biggest disconnect that any of those those big items that you've that you mentioned that have all happened within the last few months, whether it's the filing of the SPAC, you know, to be clear, we filed for a SPAC. We haven't launched it yet. Mm-hmm. So there's a big difference there. It, it, it isn't up and running. It has an IPO. And, and so um, stay tuned for any, anything with that. So it's just the announcement at this point, the investment in Vistar with the technology player and programmatic and a minority investment at, at that sort of rare for us. Those are sort of uncharacteristic for Lamar. But I don't think of them as creating a more scattered strategy mm-hmm. for Lamar. I, I consider it just clarifying and doubling down on our existing sure. strategy of, of managing and purchasing, you know, high-quality, requalified assets in the U.S. So, you know, good, solid billboard assets and managing them to the best of our ability with great people, selling them locally and leveraging our, our national sales force to, to augment sales as well, developing new locations, building deep ties with landowners and communities. And, and so in order to double down on that and sort of have folks put blinders on mm-hmm. and say, I promise this industry matters, it's going to be around for a long time. Sure. But at the same time saying, you can feel good about getting a paycheck from Lamar, about knowing that we're going to be around for forever, about doubling down on yeah. your business, because we are going to explore these other tangential disruptive yeah. forces that are out there mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't distract either from you sort of mentally mm-hmm. or with capital, you know, if you right. said, "Hey, you're not going to get the best tools for local AEs or for for real estate managers for assessing new sites because we've decided to take that IT budget and put it into, you know, right. diverted elsewhere." You right. know, there's there's sometimes a, a tug of war of, of resources and forces with any with any company. Yeah, and so some of this was saying. Yes, there's a lot of interesting and exciting things happening. Like you say, we're constantly evaluating some of these new place-based screens that we think are mm-hmm. compelling, especially those that have a, a software component that provide real utility to the end users besides just advertising. The way that programmatic networks have come online for, for online sales has been tremendous. And so, you know, it's just, I think we're good at not only identifying opportunities, mm-hmm. But it's not enough just to identify opportunities. You have to create the right habitat to be able to take advantage of those opportunities yep. in the right environment. Right. And a lot of that is, you know, you got to look at capital markets. You got to look at management teams. You got to look at incentives. Mm-hmm. And you got you to make sure a lot of those things align perfectly. And I'm, I'm kind of one of those folks that, like, if you can't make everything really align and then go after it with everything you've got, then yeah. I'm inclined to say, then let's keep noodling on it until we can get everything aligned and go after it with everything we've got or you know put it in the too hard bin and revisit it later on so i know that was a long-winded answer i'm not sure i I, I, I even answered your question but you did well and you added a bunch to it too and it's i i think the evolution of just the transaction has changed over obviously the 120 years lamar's have been around but you know the way that we create efficiencies the way that we streamline the RFP process, you know, there, there's ways that out of home companies are focusing more on technology shouldn't be a sign that, oh, well, the billboard side of the business isn't as important. 
it, it's just part of transactions. It's a part of doing business. You know, the way, the way we hail a cab is a bit different than we did 10 years ago. So how do we evolve as an industry the way the rest of the, the industry has evolved? Like, mm-hmm. i.e., I want to buy a, a billboard at 11 o'clock at night. How does Lamar Advertising evolve to that point to where we're now side by side with that local advertiser that can buy an Instagram ad at 11 o'clock at night through their mobile device? How do they transact the same exact way, regardless of relationships that we have? Because we know we're the best at that. So how do you see the evolution of the transaction changing and is it imperative for, for the industry to move towards that direction of, of a transaction while still preserving that local AE relationship? Because I think that that's where the advantage is for Lamar. Yeah, you know, I, I can hold both truths in my mind at the same time, meaning that coming from outside the industry, I thought it was absurd that you couldn't book yeah. advertising space the same way you could book a flight online or purchase other advertising online advertising media via you know uh, an online user interface transact right then and there without having to go through an agency intermediary and then I started selling out of home and I, uh, and to some extent I got co-opted a little bit like mm-hmm. you know you know having real local knowledge having this consultative approach with somebody who understands this medium deeply is going to help you get the best results. And yeah, there might be a little bit of friction um, on the front end, but it helps us weed out who's going to be good, good customers for the long term, sure. and it makes sure that their campaigns are successful. So I think that, you know, most people can listen to both of those examples and say, yes, I agree to both. Yeah. And there lies the, you know, the challenge and the fun that we have in front of us is because, yeah, yeah, we've got to got to get this figured out for the sake uh, of our customers who, who, you know, who who want easier access, who want more availability, who want real-time pricings. And I think we're going to, I think we're going to get there. I think that a lot of the pieces are falling into place, sure. you know, kind of like, like you, like I mentioned earlier and like you're noticing there's, there are structural issues with making that experience as what it should be. Yeah. And, and so we're getting the incentives aligned so that it can, you know, so that it can eventually happen. But I'm not all one way or, or all the other. I really do sort of see the benefit of both. And I really can't wait for, you know, a self-service, uh, semi-self-service online yeah. uh, outdoor ad buying. Mm-hmm. I can't wait for it to sort of reveal itself because it's not going to be pure programmatic. No. It's not, it's going to look, it's not going to look like a online travel agency of yeah. just, you know, selecting locations. You know, if we do it right, it, it I think it is going to be special and it's, it's going to enhance the power of our medium as, as people understand it at the buying process. So all we've got to do is just, we got to come after it with an approach where with some urgency, but at the same time, be prepared to think independently in terms of yeah. how, how our medium is going to, you know, going to exist and transact online. Yeah. We talked about that. It's what, what makes out of home exciting and fun is the massive billboard on the side of the road. Like that's oh, yeah. a, as an advertiser, as a brand, as just a human, that's the thing that gets you excited. Like if that was my white piece of paper on the side of the billboard, I would do this, 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 and this to it. And it, it's fascinating to watch how excited people get when you say, you know, obviously a little bit more tech, but here's some crayons, draw whatever you would want 
your billboard to be. And I think that we've discussed that. Like that's probably where the transaction should start is blank canvas. What do you want your billboard to be? What do you want the message to be? What would you like it to look like? Oh, it has all these cool characteristics because it's a digital that could change based off of all of these parameters and, and data sets. Have fun with it. Right. And then let's figure out what locations are. Let's look at rates. Let's look at impressions. So I, I think oftentimes we get so bogged down in like, oh, well, there's this data company and there's that data company and you can transact programmatically or you can transact this way. When at the end of the day, we as humans, most of us are extremely visual focused. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's kind of the fun side of it. So transitioning towards that, I, I consider you a bit of a futurist, whether you realize that or not. But if Ross gets to visualize the next five to 10 years, not saying it's so, but where, where do you want to see the billboard industry go? Where do you see it evolving to? You know, so the, the first thing that I tell folks about this, about this business and how I think about it is that just because I'm in the billboard business doesn't mean I want more billboards and more outdoor advertising everywhere. Yes. And so I think that sort of something happened after this. I don't know if I've, I'm more clued in to outdoor advertising. I've, I've been, you know, I've, I've visited New York and LA recently. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're cued into everything, you realize that so much just, you know, square footage is trying to be monetized. And a lot of it doesn't, doesn't provide as, as much value as it should. And it only sort of clutters the landscape, uh, whether that's an urban landscape or a, you know, or a rural landscape. And so there is something that we've got to understand as an industry is that there is, there is a limit to things, you know, and, and that, you know, focusing on good quality impressions from good quality displays, whether or not it's painted on a a wallscape that's painted, whether or not it's a digital, whether or not it's vinyl, whether or not it's paper, but at least being a cohesive and and defined space that makes sense. That matters. And I think that it's going to matter even more as, you know, as people realize that outdoor advertising is one of the few sort of places left for broadcast mass media where you get to capture everybody regardless of their the niche they've placed themselves on their online device. Right. So, so there's that part that I'm, that I'm thinking about the regulatory side that, that is always, that has always been a partner, a foe at, at, at point mm-hmm. at, at, at points, but I just want to make sure it's rationalized and rational and all players sort of follow the, follow the same rule set. Number two, there's the programmatic component, you know, growing even more. And to be honest, I thought that it'd be growing faster right now because we would have unlocked attribution and sort of one-to-one targeting in a more precise way. But I think that that thesis is we're still sort of marching towards that track, but with some of the privacy implications with, you know, Google cookie policy, with, you know, Apple privacy policy, it's actually not accelerating as fast as I thought it would, but that's perfectly fine. But people are sort of coming over to out of home for programmatics, you know, online programmatic because they're saying, Hey, a lot of the precision that I used to pay for here isn't, you know, they're going to figure it out, but we're now kind of back to wider distribution ranges than we thought. Right. 
And so that that was sort of an interesting development. So like driverless car stuff. Let's let's go down that path. Does that does does a Lamar in twenty five years evolve into selling the insides of cars because that's the entire experience? You know, typically we do best at selling inventory that we own and control. Yep. You know? And so there is no no to any of these questions. If it's in the future, will Lamar, you know, the default is, yeah, we're going to look into it and hopefully make the right decision. You know, it's kind of like if if you consider if the best driverless cars in the future are the equivalent of a rolling smartphone, you know, it's sort of, well, who gets the, you know, who gets the revenue from the, you know, from a smartphone? Yeah. It's, you know, it's. Apple for having, you know, fees at the app store, but not selling, you know, or participating really in the ad environment, though they are, you know, coming on strong with trying to start selling ads. And then it's Google, you know, with Android. And so, and they haven't need, you know, needed us to, to sell in the past, though they have come to us with interesting questions about, man, it'd be cool to leverage, you know, your, your on the ground account executives that really understand their communities for selling locally. So I think that there are some some issues around how how we're going to participate in that, but we're going to be studying it, yeah. poking at it, and trying to figure out where we you know, yeah. you know where where we stand in that ecosystem and sort of you know sharpen our elbows and, and make a place for ourselves if we have to. Yeah, and it's it, you and I've discussed this a good bit the the augmented reality side of of things and should that evolve into the space where things just holograms or things that just visually pop up in your eyes that that begins to to become a conflict right because here you are you have a billboard company that has secured rightfully the space and then now you're walking down Beale Street in Nashville and because you have a certain pair of goggles on you have screens popping up all over the place and uh, did you ask for that screen? Did you ask for that interaction? And so I, I'm with you. I think that the regulatory world, or i.e. the minority report world, it, it could become a reality. And I, I would say no one wants that. Yeah. So, you know, I think that, I think that for, yeah, augmented reality, I think there's the metaverse, which will have its own yeah. laws and rules, you yeah. know, when you're fully immersed in, 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 in VR or in a screen and sort of an alternate reality. And each one of those different, you know, whoever the world builder is, they get to decide, you know, how you monetize that world, you know, what, what's of value and what rules to play by. Yep. But when you start talking about augmented reality and, and overlaying pictures and, you know, graphics over, you know, your, your lived experience in your real world, you know, to me, it makes sense to, to abide by the same sort of, you know, property rights and, and, you know, zoning and permitting, you know, rules that you would have in the real world in that, you know, in that augmented world. And so, I mean, there are interesting things, there, there are things that, that we need to at least start thinking about and talking about and having a cohesive language for right now as a company, as an industry, because, because I think sooner than later, we're going to be having that, that conversation as soon as a Snapchat, a Google an Apple, a Facebook all releases that, you know, that, that device that looks like a slick pair of glasses that can, you know, that can, apply, um, you know, an augmented reality layer, we have to understand, you know, where we, 
where we play in that, you know, in, in that universe before it's, you know, before it's too late. So sure. even, even if it's really nascent, even if it's just a toy, even if they only sell a thousand units at first, you know, it'll be interesting to, I guess, to have, to have a point of view of, of what happens yeah. when augmented reality becomes real, what happens when somebody can, can sell, can sell outdoor advertising in anybody's um, right. visual. Yeah. As we wrap up this conversation, it's fascinating that the first thing, and I love that you you mentioned the metaverse because I've kind of dove deep into it and had to pull, feel like I had to pull myself out and take a shower because it just seemed like just a weird, bizarre world. But the first thing that people start to think about is, you know, maybe it's it goes back to our caveman days of got to draw something on the wall or I got to go in this metaverse and I need to build out a billboard and put an ad on it. And then now uh, one of my people that inspire me the most, Elon Musk, is like, if you guys put a billboard on Mars, like, I'm going to lose it. And so. Oh, so I saw that first article and it was like, I thought it was like endorsed by Elon, but he came back and said, hell no. He was, he was like, you guys have screwed up earth enough that you want to go put a billboard. Uh So evidently there's a Canadian based company that wants to project all this nonsense into space. Mm -hmm. Like as if there's, you know, we're living in this garden of the galaxy where people are zooming by looking at billboards in Mars, like who's actually seeing yeah. these, but it, it does, it does prove out what we as humans like we're visual people. And I think that that's always been the success with out of home is that visual aspect of it, whether we're in the past or here we are in the future, it's kind of where we've evolved. And, you know, you, you sit in this fascinating role and position to be able to determine, you know, who Lamar buys and what are the next steps as a company. So um, I don't, did you have anything else you wanted to add? You know, this has been, this, this might be my first podcast interview. So I want to say thanks for thinking about me and yeah, I hope I, oh, you know, and, and who would have thought you were a natural, you know, host, man. I know we, we kind of hatched this idea about yeah. like six months ago and, uh, I'm glad to see you running with it and I hope you it picks up a lot of traction. I hope we have many more of these, you know, for sure. Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of content that exists in the space and, you know, my guest here, Ross Riley, is is at the forefront of it. So thank you for letting us dive into your brain a bit. We didn't ask too much about your personal life. So, you know, you are have all sorts of adventures. So maybe the next time we have next you time. on, we'll touch on it. Next sure. time. So, thanks, Ian. Yeah, thanks, Ross, so much. Digital and Dirt is brought to you by Lamar Advertising. To learn more, check out the links in the description or go to programmatic.lamar.com.